Kenzie Lambert here, your host for Mac and the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten and the unforgettable. As I mentioned on the podcast, we will be taking a look at select films from the directorial career of Al Adamson. Those films are Blood of Dracula's Castle, Five Bloody Graves, Brain of Blood, Dracula vs. Frankenstein, Blazing Stewardesses, and Nurse Sherry. Before we look at the films, let's look at the man himself. Albert Victor Adamson Jr. was born on July 25, 1929 in Hollywood, California. He was the son of silent-era actor Victor Adamson, a.k.a. Denver Dixon, and silent-era actress Dolores Booth. Albert was involved in filmmaking at a young age, starting at the age of six. He was cast in his father's film, Desert Mesa. In 1961, he helped co-direct Halfway to Hell with his father, although uncredited. This was the beginning of Adamson as a director. In September of 1962, he was introduced to distributor Sam Sherman. Together, they founded Independent International Pictures. This particular partnership would be similar to the likes of Herschel Gordon Lewis and David F. Friedman. The partnership would last from the mid-60s through to the late 1970s. Their last film working together was Nurse Sherry. In 1969, Adamson met Regina Carroll while casting for Satan's Sadus. According to Adamson, Regina was a waitress in a cafe where he was having lunch. When she heard he was a film director, she spilled coffee on him to get his attention. Three years later, they were married and stayed such up to her death in 1992 from cancer. Adamson is unfortunately known for his shocking death. In 1995, he was reported missing. Weeks later, his body was found beneath the floorboards of his Indio, California home. Fred Fulfert, a live-in contractor, was charged for the murder and sentenced to 25 years to life. And on that cheery note, let's jump into the movies. We got movies! Dracula's castle. It's a fascinating place to visit, but you couldn't live here. Not for very long, anyway. This is the master bedroom. Certain people find the old place positively captivating. What are you going to do to me? Right now, I'm going to take a sample of your blood. Blood of Dracula's Castle, for the most charming vampires you'll ever meet. Mm, delicious. I've never had it before. It's new. A type 00 positive. Oh, by the way, Joe, we have arranged for Johnny's release. And we shall be supplied with new vintages all the time. Johnny's their ward. He's not a bad sort, either. If you like fiends... And we mustn't forget Mango. He'll relieve the tedium if you get bored. Blood of Dracula's Castle. 
a picture that will delight anyone who finds a certain satisfaction in horror and lunacy. Drop in some night. Meet the members of the household. You may even see the last of a vanishing breed. They're gone. Turned dust. Dracula's Castle, in color, a Crown International release. Count Dracula and his lovely wife are currently residing in Falcon Rock Castle in modern-day Arizona. Living with them are their faithful servant, George, and the ogre-like Mango. They anticipate their son, Johnny, will be coming by any day. Johnny is a serial killer who becomes erratic when the moon is full. Unfortunately for the family, the castle has been inherited by Glenn Cannon, a photographer who is set to be married to his model, Liz. Dracula hopes to be able to convince Glenn to keep him in the lease, but little does he know Glenn hopes to use the castle as his own personal studio. When Glenn and Liz arrive, they don't suspect the horror that awaits them. Women chained in the dungeon, the predatory intentions of Johnny, lumbering brute Mango, tarantulas, rats... Even more alarming is that it will soon be time for this bizarre family to make a sacrifice to the great god Luna. Blood of Dracula's Castle feels like an odd mix. This film was made at the time when horror was dominated by the likes of Hammer Studios in Britain, as well as Roger Corman. Adamson is clearly drawing from those specific films, yet it has this low-budget sleaziness akin to Herschel Gordon Lewis, Coleman Francis, or Anthony Cardoza. There is a sense of tonal confusion which adds to the fun of this film. It has a zaniness to it that you can't help but watch this movie. You have the Charles Adams caliber camp of the Count and Countess, along with Mango and George. The romance between Glenn and Liz is basic in its presentation. Johnny adds much tension, given the killer instinct we see of him, from battering a prison guard to death, to drowning an innocent sunbather, to blasting a shotgun in a hitchhiker's face. It's all hinted that he may be a werewolf, but we never see a transformation or change in behavior while under the full moon. The castle sets are decent, they were well designed and provided much needed production value. The dungeon set is hilariously cheap. It's like something you'd see when Al Lewis, uh, a.k.a. Grandpa Munster, was hosting movies on Saturday morning for TBS. The exterior shots of Falcon Rock were filmed at Shays Castle, a.k.a. Sky Castle, in Lancaster, California. Blood of Dracula's Castle marked the solo directorial debut of Al Adamson. It's rough around the edges, the camera placement is off, either too close to someone's face or back enough to capture everyone in the shot. I'm not going to blame the cinematographer because that was Laszlo Kovacs. This guy would go on to work on such films as Easy Rider, Ghostbusters, Say Anything, and Miss Congeniality. I'm going to leave that uh, to Adamson as being at fault and uh, not properly directing Kovacs. John Carradine was cast as George, the loyal butler of the vampire Townsends. You can tell he's having a good time chewing the scenery. Carradine's career goes all the way back to the 1930s and past his death in 1988, where he was still featured in films. He played Dracula in some of the later Universal horror films. 
His prominent credits include The Grapes of Wrath, Stagecoach, The Ten Commandments, and the Carl Kojak TV movie sequel, The Night Strangler. Paula Raymond was the Countess, having it up with Carradine and co-star Alexander Darcy. Raymond's career in television lasted longer than her film career, which didn't last long past 1950. TV credits include Perry Mason, Maverick, Peter Gunn, and Gunsmoke. Playboy Playmates and actress Jane Mansfield was originally cast for the role of the Countess, but sadly died before filming. Alexander Darcy plays up the Gomez Adams charm of Count Dracula. He brings an undeniable enthusiasm to the role. Darcy, Egyptian by ethnicity, was a frequent player in silent film. He managed to transition to sound films, reaching his peak appearing alongside Marilyn Monroe in How to Marry a Millionaire. You have Robert Dix as the cold-blooded Johnny. He stands out because his character doesn't fit in with the Townsends. While the Townsends are cartoonish, he's a legitimate threat to Glenn and Liz. Blood of Dracula's Castle would be the first of five films Dix would work with Adamson. Over a 20-year career, his biggest credits include Forbidden Planet with Leslie Nielsen, as well as Live and Let Die, the Bond debut for Roger Moore. He struck me as being the low-budget William Holden, with his square jaw and frontman good looks. As the model Liz, there's Jennifer Bishop. She would appear in a few other films. However, these roles are overshadowed by her being a regular on the hillbilly comedy show Hee Haw. Gene Shane made his feature film debut as a photographer Glenn. His career was short, save for two other films and an appearance on the TV show for the Monkees. Lastly, Vicky Volante plays one of the victims chained in the dungeon of the Townsends. She would be a regular for Adamson, as you'll see later in this episode. Blood of Dracula's Castle is a surprisingly fun watch. Imagine Charles Adams making a Hammer vampire film. There is some humor, but maintains tension and a sense of danger, thanks to a chilling performance by Robert Dix as Johnny. I would recommend this one. The shocking scenes you are about to see are not suggested for the weak or immature. If you cannot take it, we advise you to now patronize the concession stand or look away from the screen during this preview of Five Bloody Graves. Four Bloody Graves. And one is waiting. You know, I, I, always, I always thought I'd get it in some, some gambling hall or some, some bedroom and... <laughs> Boy, here I am. Off on some goat trail. If you're dumb enough to waste time burying me, I promise you, I'll come back and haunt you. I want to thank you for shooting. You're going to find out that death by ants is very slow. No! No! See the most sensual and sadistic slaughter the West ever witnessed and the most shock-filled look at raw brutality you will ever see. See Riders of Doom roaring their way to a deadly finish in Five Bloody Graves. 
the violent West explodes with all its passionate and inhuman fury unleashed. You'll watch sick gunmen stage a savage massacre of wanton women. See frontier killers trapped in a fatal struggle from which there is no escape. See men die on the sharp lances of wild savages. And see the horrible atrocity of women scalped to death. Five bloody graves. A small band of Apaches are roaming the desert, killing any white men and women they come across. They're led by the ruthless Satago. Two men stand up to him, bringing the fight to him. One is Ben Thompson, who wants Satago dead for murdering his wife on his wedding night. Joining Ben is the half-brother of Satago, Joe Lightfoot, who was out to avenge the rape and murder of his wife. Things get complicated when Ben and Joe come across a group stranded in the canyons. Among the group is Jim Wade and his wife, Lavinia, a preacher by the name of Boone Hawkins, Kansas Kelly, and a pair of her prostitutes. Ben and Joe agree to help them navigate the canyons and protect them from Satago. But that task is easier said than done. Watching all this happen is Death, who see the likes of Ben Thompson and Satago as agents in his employ. Five Bloody Graves was a gritty, bloody western that came out at a time when the genre was at its most diverse. You had the American westerns, which were on their way out. There were the spaghetti westerns, notably the films of Sergio Leone. You had acid westerns, which included psychedelic imagery. There were Greek westerns, a.k.a. bean soup westerns. You had meat pie westerns from Australia. Five Bloody Graves has its moments. There is some gore, but it's done in a slapdash manner that won't satiate the gore hounds. There is very little of it, too little compared to the torture scene of Tuco and the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Even the two instances of scalping lack any gore and blood. The Indian doing the scalping looks like he's just holding a wig. If you're going to call your movie Five Bloody Graves, there better be a lot of bloody moments. The crazy jazz lounge music selections feel out of place for a western. Whoever was the music supervisor didn't seem to want to put in the time to find tracks more fitting for the grim tone of the film. Yet, this adds some charm to the film as well. What hinders Five Bloody Graves is the slow pace. There's action scenes that spice up the film, but the scenes in between have the pace come to a screeching halt. And you will feel the slowdown. For a 90-minute movie, it feels so much longer. The scenery of Capitol Reef National Park in Utah was a beauty, caught by the camera eye of Vilmos Zygmunt. Similar to Lazlo Kovacs, Zygmunt got his start working in exploitation, notably the sadists with Arch Hall Jr. and the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed-up zombies for director Ray Dennis Stegler. He would go on to work on the, such classics as Deliverance, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Deer Hunter, and the Chinatown sequel, The Two Jakes. Robert Dix, an Adamson regular, uh, plays Ben Thompson. Here, Dix shows his leading man chops, almost emulating Rock Hudson. He shows some emotion, a little vulnerability, when he doesn't come off as cold. Scott Brady was Jim Wade, the head of the stranded group. Brady plays up the bravado as the hapless leader. 
He had a few noted credits. He was in The Night Strangler, as well as Gremlins. Plenty of TV credits, including Mission Impossible, Gunsmoke, All in the Family, and The Rockford Files. The lovely Darlene Luke as Althea Richards, a prostitute among the stranded group. She gave a decent performance as the headstrong, possible love interest for Ben. Five Bloody Graves was her last acting role in a career featuring the beach films with Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello. John Bud Cardos filled the role of Joe Lightfoot, the equally vengeful partner to Ben Thompson, who was out to avenge his own wife. Cardos had a versatile career. He was a stuntman, transportation director, and second unit director. Most importantly, he was the director of the William Shatner classic, Kingdom of the Spiders. Coming back from Dracula's Castle, in addition to Robert Dix, you have John Carradine as Boone the Preacher, Paula Raymond as the Madame at Kansas Kelly, and Vicky Volante as a victim of an assault by Satago. Five Bloody Graves is a film that suffers from a slow pace and a severe lack of violence. It pales in comparison to the other Western offerings of the time. This is a subpar effort, even for an Al Adamson film. Unless you're a filmography completionist of Al Adamson, this is one you can skip. They live by night. They hide in the dark and rise from the shadows. They can never feel the warmth of living human blood in their veins. Their bodies are cold and dead. Dracula versus Frankenstein. creature horribly created from the mangled corpses of their victims. Dracula versus Frankenstein. His blood is cold, but his mind is keen. He cannot die, for he is already dead. His name is Dracula. Another lives, but his body belongs to the dead. The two will join forces, but only one will survive. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Oakmoor Cemetery is a cold, lifeless place to visit at night. Unless you're already dead, and your name is Dracula. Together in one film, they meet in a fight of fright. The kings of horror battle to the death. Dracula versus... Frankenstein. In Los Angeles, the last descendant of the Frankenstein family, Dr. Duryea, is abducting random girls in the hopes of reviving his ancestor's creation. 
with the assistance of his dwarf associate, Grasbo. His mute henchman, Grotan, goes out and gets the girls. Count Dracula finds Dr. Durier, wanting the doctor to grant him immortality and immunity to the rays of the sun. Judith is the sister of one of the girls kidnapped by Dr. Durier. She's a Vegas lounge singer and manages to pull off a decent tune, I Travel Light. Against the wishes of the LAPD, she takes it upon herself to get involved in the investigation. She gets mixed up in the underground biker and drug scene. She finds people willing to help her find her missing sister. As the group gets closer to finding Dr. Durier, Dracula becomes more demanding of the doctor. Soon, the monster is revived and becomes subservient to Dracula. After capturing Judith, Dracula intends to use her to make himself immortal. But Frankenstein's monster becomes obsessed with Judith, leading to the climactic battle promised in the film's title. It's the King of the Vampires versus the Patchwork Behemoth. Dracula vs. Frankenstein harkens back to the classic universal horror films of yesteryear. Horror fans can finally remember the Monster Mash classic like Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman or House of Frankenstein. Some of the more recent clashes of iconic monsters include Freddy vs. Jason and Alien vs. Predator. I was looking forward to Kong vs. Godzilla until I found out it's being directed by the same guy who gave us the Netflix version of Death Note. In 1971, Al Adamson brought the classic monsters of Dracula and Frankenstein's monster into a campy, violent, low-budget film. Adamson provides a genuine tribute to the heyday of universal horror in attempting to make these monsters scary again. Also, Adamson casts a few of the roles with actors synonymous with that era of filmmaking. The film features some decent effects, both visual and in the makeup department, There's the beam from Dracula's ring, and the look of the monster comes close to matching Jack Pierce, but not so much that lawyers would need to be involved. The fight between the monsters, bad lighting and all, was still entertaining. With how the fight plays out, it's not far-fetched to think it influenced the fight between Arthur and the Black Knight and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Here's a snippet of an interview with Dracula vs. Frankenstein's producer and distributor, Sam Sherman that Monty Python adapted that for a film about the killing of a Templar knight. I've never seen the film, uh, but uh, Terry Gilliam used to share a desk at Warren Publishing with me, and he he despised all our movies and famous monsters and Screen Thrills magazine and all that stuff we were doing, which paid the rent there, and he worked for Help magazine. That was an artistic failure. So he was very negative about that. So I always wondered... Uh, if he had seen Dracula versus Frankenstein and taken my ending, I thought it was a unique ending. For a while, the film was considered lost. Thankfully, Dracula versus Frankenstein was given a high-profile release and distribution through Troma. For as much as I would knock Troma for their content, I have to get them credit for giving filmmakers opportunities they wouldn't normally get, and for some of the films that they've distributed in the past. Most notably, My Neighbor Totoro in the early 1990s. Lon Chaney Jr. plays the mute Grotan. His character lacking lines may have been due to the part that Chaney was suffering from throat cancer during filming. Chaney brings an innocence to Grotan, 
almost mirroring his turn as Lenny from Of Mice and Men. Cheney holds a few bragging rights when it comes to horror cinema. He played the four main monsters of the Universal roster, the Wolfman, Frankenstein's Monster, Dracula, and the Mummy. He's also the only actor to play Lawrence Talbot, a.k.a. the Wolfman. Angelo Rosito is the dwarf assistant to Dr. Duryea Grosbo. Rosito was in his share of classics, Freaks for Todd Browning, as well as The Wizard of Oz, and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. He was the short guy for Master Blaster. J. Carol Nash played Dr. Duryea. He may be best known as the hunchback assistant to Boris Karloff in House of Frankenstein. One of the new talents in this film was Xander Vorkov, a.k.a. stockbroker Robert Engel as Count Dracula, who plays the role with Satisfactory Camp. The other is the seven foot four accountant John Bloom as the monster. The fact that you have an accountant and a stockbroker fighting at the end of the film is worth a chuckle. Regina Carroll filled the role of Judith, the main protagonist. She turns in a good performance despite what many may consider to be nepotism. During her performance of I Travel Light, keep an eye out for Adamson making a cameo as an audience member. For the remainder of her career, she only appeared in Adamson's films. Also making a cameo is Dr. Acula himself, Forrest J. Ackerman, the founder of Famous Monsters of Filmland. Dracula vs. Frankenstein has all the camp and respect for the classic Universal monsters, mixing it with the sleaze of the grindhouse fodder that was pumped out in the late 60s through the early 80s. This is probably Adamson's best-known film, and arguably his best. I highly recommend this one. How many ways can you distort the human mind? One way is to remove the brain itself and control it. It's a fiendish spectacle of shocking surgery as new life is given to a man already dead, a creature created in an operation of horror. impulses to destroy? See, brain of blood for the shocking answer. His body returned to its grave, but the brain was gone, living on in a madman's skull. Deep in the doctor's chamber of horrors, living victim supplied the serum for his experiments. So fantastic and unbelievable that you'll have to watch every moment of brain of blood to see for yourself.
his brain was saved for the most unholy experiments. The brain of a dead man lives in a creature of horror. the king of the country of Khalid, and he is about to die from cancer. His loyalists are to take his dead body to Dr. Trenton, who is located in the United States. The doctor is to perform an experimental brain transplant, moving the brain of Amir from one body to another. Aiding him are Doro, his dwarf assistant, and Robert, the medical assistant to Amir. The doctor successfully removed Amir's brain and preserved it until a body is found. Gore, the monstrous henchman of Dr. Trenton, finds a body for him, yet Gore manhandles the victim to be brutally beating him. With time of the essence, Dr. Trenton puts the brain of Amir in the body of Gore. Upon regaining consciousness, Amir is furious and escapes the lab. Thus begins a chase where Robert has to go after Dr. Trenton, who is also going after Amir. The origin of Brain of Blood is an interesting one. Sam Sherman was a production consultant for Eddie Romero's Mad Doctor of Blood Island, a Filipino exploitation film about plant man zombies. The film was a huge success that Sherman wanted a film immediately put in production similar to Mad Doctor of Blood Island. Sherman went to his go-to director, Al Adamson, to make such a film. Brain of Blood ended up being that film, to the point where some of the music by Tito Arevalo from Mactor of Blood Island is used. plays out very much like a twist on Frankenstein, more specifically the atomic brain, which I reviewed as part of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 inspired episode. Number 24, Without the Riffs. You have a scientist who is switching out brains from one body to another. Instead of a wealthy old lady, it's the beloved leader of a fictional country. Brain of Blood maintains the wackiness of Dracula vs. Frankenstein, as well as a brain surgery scene that will make the gorehounds happy. While not riffed on MST3K, Brain of Blood was one of the films skewered by the short-lived side project, Cinematic Titanic. This group featured the non-riff tracks crew of Joel Hodgson, Trace Beaulieu, Frank Kniff, Mary Jo Pell, and J. Elvis Weinstein. The movie itself is enjoyable without the riffing, but hearing members of the original crew from the Satellite of Love adds a lot of fun. Returning cast members from Dragula vs. Frankenstein include Regina Carroll, John Bloom, Xander Vorkoff, and Angela Rosito. Carroll and Rosito are fine in their minor supporting roles. John Bloom, in bad makeup, reminded me of the conehead you'd see at sports games, either for the Buffalo Bisons or the Sabres. 
For you non-Buffalo people, he's either Sloth from the Goonies or Michael Berryman. Xander Vorkov will raise some eyebrows as Muhammad. Arab-faced performances don't age well, uh, this one in particular. Grant Williams uh, plays Robert, the personal doctor for Amir. Williams plays the doctor with good intentions, but ends up coming off as the precursor to Richard Liberty. Williams is best known for playing the title character in The Incredible Shrinking Man. Vintage cinema leading man Kent Taylor plays Dr. Trenton with a Vincent Priceian flair. He chews up the scenery, but plays the doctor straight. He enjoyed a lengthy TV career with programs like Zorro, The Rifleman, and Peter Gunn. Reed Hadley was another talent that was a leading man before a TV career that ended on an exploitation note, notably the St. Valentine's Day Massacre for Roger Corman. Hadley played the role of Amir, but saved from having to don the Arab face makeup. Hadley was featured on Rawhide, Perry Mason, and The Red Skeleton Show. I wanted to give special attention to Adamson regular Vicky Volante. When we first saw her, she was a girl chained up in a dungeon with a tarantula crawling on her for Blood of Dracula's Castle. Take a guess at what happens to her in Brain of Blood. Yeah, she's chained up in a dungeon and has an obviously fake plastic spider crawling on her. Brain of Blood is another enjoyable campfest from Al Adamson. Some familiar faces with some new ones. Uh, some brief but effective gore. And if you've seen Mad Doctor of Blood Island, you'll get to hear the great music of, score of it here. A surprising recommendation. <laughs> Look up, look out. Look what happens when three cool big city chicks set the West on fire. Blazing stewardesses. stranger and I extended a personal invitation too so it has to be stiff come back that's it you see that's it and this song has to be stiff Shell pretty. Listen, Can Carl. you turn a damn light on in here? I get scared in the dark. What the hell's happening? What do they want? Beats me, Ben. You know, I'm beginning to believe there's some truth to those old legends. Old legends? Hell, legends don't steal gambling equipment.
ride with the hooded riders as they turn the stewardess's vacation into a wild cliffhanger. Will our heroines be their next victims? stewardess catches her boyfriend in bed with another woman her friends Lori and barbara try to console her things turn for the better when debbie receives a phone call from ben brewster who invites her down to his ranch resort debbie's friends tag along with her for some needed r&r unfortunately someone has been robbing trucks and horse trailers that belong to brewster while the girls are taken in the sights they end up in the middle of a rivalry between brewster and competitor mike trask What follows is a Western-themed sex comedy. Blazing Stewardesses is actually a sequel and with a title meant to capitalize on the success of Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles. The previous film was Naughty Stewardesses. It comes off as a late-night sex romp comedy with only brief moments of nudity and some TNA. Al Adamson wanted to pay tribute to the B and Z movie heroes that inspired him to be a filmmaker, and that fondness shows in the film. There's some fist fighting, but no violence or gore that was common in some of Adamson's previous films. The opening makes that very clear. Hence, why the cast is filled with veterans of the 1930s and 40s westerns, as well as a few comedians. Yvonne DiCarlo plays Honey Morgan, the madam of the ranch. She even has a music number showcasing her singing talents. Most will know her as Lily Munster. Robert Livingston and Don Barry play the rivals Brewster and Trask, respectively. Both were frequent players in old B-picture westerns and found second careers in television parts. Harry and Jimmy Ritz play the comic relief. They were a knockoff of the Marx Brothers along with their third brother, Al. Sadly, Al passed away in 1965. Originally, Adamson wanted the three stooges in the film who were, at the time, consisted of Moe Howard, Larry Fine, and Joe Dorita. Due to poor health, Moe wasn't able to film, and the Ritz brothers were brought in as substitutes. Connie Hoffman played the lead role, Debbie. She comes off as passive, and when she does try to show some comedic chops, the performance feels forced. Other than appearing in the previous film, her only other credit of note was appearing on Starsky and Hutch. Marilyn Joy plays one of Debbie's friends, Barbara. She has some good chemistry with her castmates. She was a regular in uh, the exploitation genre, working with Fred the Hammer Williamson, Pam Greer, and Jim Kelly. 
I mostly know her as Cleopatra Schwartz from the classic sketch in the Kentucky Fried movie. Also appearing is Regina Carroll as Laurie, the ditzy stewardess. Carroll plays the role in an SNL fashion, better for a short sketch than a full-length film. Jeffrey Land plays Bob Travers, a timid man who's nervous around Debbie. He ends up being her love interest, evolving into a macho cowboy by the end of the film. He had a short career, but made bit part appearances in The Rockford Files and Barnaby Jones. I wasn't too crazy about Blazing Stewardesses, but I do appreciate the effort that Adamson put in for paying tribute to classic Hollywood. This is another film where if you're a completionist, then yeah, it's it's okay. But if you want to look for better films, then unfortunately this is one you can skip. I'm not going back there. Look, Beth, the only way we can get this thing over with is to burn the body. Now, for those who have seen The Exorcist, Carrie and Ruby, here is new unspeakable horror in Nurse Sherry. From a doomed medical operation to the return of an evil human soul driven to evil in a strange and gruesome story from the other side of life. You know absolutely nothing about what you're dealing with. Don't be afraid. Take my hand. Come with me, Sherry. And I'll introduce you to the bliss that lies beyond the borders of hell. Living, breathing terror chills your flowing blood and shocks your nervous system cold in Nurse Sherry. It's the year's most frightening journey into the hidden world of the supernatural. And it soon becomes a nightmare of living hell and torment. When we were in the 17th century, I'd be inclined to diagnose her symptoms as a classical case of possession. Don't touch me! Stay where you are. Don't interfere with things you know nothing about. Your powers are are finite. Mine are limitless. Meet Nurse Sherry and travel into the hidden corridors of a twisted mind to the very core of her tormented soul. It's more bizarre, more terrifying than your most frightening fears. Nurse Sherry. Don't miss Nurse Sherry for an evening of pleasure and terror. Nurse Sherry in color. Greenhauer is a professor who is the leader of a cult. During a ritual, he suffers a heart attack that interrupts the ceremony. He's taken to a hospital where he dies on the emergency room table. Yet, his spirit leaves his body and possesses Sherry, one of the nurses in the room. From there, you have Sherry going around, taking vengeance on the doctors who failed to revive Reinhauer, and killing other patients in the hospital. Thanks to the occult knowledge of a blind football player... The other nurses, Tara and Beth, figure out how to save Sherry, but will they save her in time? Nurse Sherry was Adamson's attempt at cashing in on multiple genres. You had a number of devil films, be it The Exorcist, The Omen, Lisa and the Devil, Demon Witch Child, 
Blaxploitation was peaking with Shaft, Superfly, Coffee, Foxy Brown, and Three the Hard Way. The edit I saw for this review was the horror version. There was another edit that featured more nudity for the sexploitation crowd. Addison threw as much as he could at the wall to see what would stick and garner the most profit. The film loses focus at times, but still manages to entertain. This shifting of genres, and in turn tone, add an appeal to Nurse Sherry. The performances, save for Bill Roy as Renhauer, take the material seriously. There is a fairly tense car chase. Some of the special effects are hokey, most notably the green essence or slime or whatever it's supposed to be. Despite the small budget, Adamson did everything he could to make the film look like a modest horror effort, and it works for the most part. Sadly, this film marked the end of the partnership between Adamson and Sam Sherman. Addison's career was winding down and would pursue a career in real estate shortly after. Sam Sherman was still producing films throughout the following decades, as recent as the 2020 documentary Beyond This Earth. Bill Roy is Ryan Hauer, the academic cult leader, who took over for John Carradine in the Hamming department. He goes over the top in the role, bringing life to the scene whenever he appears. Roy's only other role was in the exploitation martial arts film Black Samurai, starring Jim Kelly of Enter the Dragon fame. Jill Jacobson plays the title role of Nurse Sherry, only her second role as an actress. With her uniform on, you could tell she was a buxom beauty. She would have a long TV career appearing in shows like Star Trek The Next Generation, Who's the Boss, Murphy Brown, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Marilyn Joy returns from blazing stewardesses in the role of Tara and ends up pulling a demon knight Jada Pinkett Smith, becoming the real hero of the film. Jeffrey Land plays Dr. Peter Desmond, the love interest for Sherry. Nurse Sherry is a gonzo movie that blends multiple genres together. The cast takes the material straight. It's a film that may be better than it has any right to be. Uh, this would be a good, a good film to follow up with after Blood of Dracula's Castle and Dracula vs. Frankenstein. And that wraps up this episode of Mac and the Movies. Thanks for listening. Uh, here's a recap of the films I recommend from Al Adamson, Blood of Dracula's Castle, Dracula vs. Frankenstein, Brain of Blood, and Nurse Sherry. Next time, I'll be taking a look at select films from the icons of the parody film. Jim Abrams, Jerry Zucker, and David Zucker. I'm talking The Kentucky Fried Movie, Airplane, The Naked Gun, Hot Shots, and Basketball. So much needed laughs in these uncertain times. If you like this podcast and would like to see it grow, feel free to offer a one-time donation. You can do either PayPal or the Cash app. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I can be contacted via Gmail. All that info in the description below. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert from Megan the Movies. Take care and stay healthy, folks. Mm-hmm.